Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. some interesting press releases from NOAA recently. NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's a federal level scientific agency within the United States Department of Commerce and basically they focus on the conditions of the oceans throughout the world, the waterways, and the atmosphere. NOAA, the acronym of NOAA for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, was formed in 1970. It has about 11,000 civilian employees. Here's a list of its fundamental activities. Monitoring and observing Earth systems with instruments and data collection networks. Understanding and describing Earth systems through research and analysis of that data. Assessing and predicting the changes of these systems over time engaging, advising, and informing the public and partner organizations with important information, and finally, managing resources for the betterment of society, economy, and the environment. The first headline in the most recent NOAA press release from June 6, 2018 is, Contiguous U.S. had its warmest May on record, that's May of 2018, It says that the average May temperature across the contiguous United States was 65.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 5.2 degrees above the average, making it the warmest May in the 124-year record. The previous record high for the month of May was set in 1934 during the Dust Bowl era. There were something like 8,500 different weather stations that had records broken or tied for high temperature in the month of May this year. It looks like precipitation was pretty normal for the month of May, but that's because of averaging. The southeast and mid-Atlantic part of the United States had very high amounts of precipitation because there were these two weather systems. One of them was subtropical storm Alberto that brought a lot of rain to the area. By the way, this subtropical storm Alberto was a little weird because it came three days before the official start of the hurricane season. So we got extra rain in the south and southeast and east coast part of the United States in the month of May, but more than a quarter of the contiguous U.S. in the west, for instance, still remains in drought. So the average rainfall came out to be about normal. This month, NOAA also released its annual high tide flooding report. Basically, they report about the number of times water levels near the ocean exceeds the heights maintained as the national flooding threshold. 
In other words, how often are coastal cities being affected by excessive tide flooding? Well, the news is not encouraging. Basically, they're finding more coastal flooding occurring now. Coastal flooding is increasing in the frequency of them occurring, the depth of the flooding, and the extent into land that the flood actually occurs. They found in southeast Atlantic coast, for instance, they're experiencing the fastest rate of increase in annual high tide flood days, something like 150% increase since 2000 in the number of high tide flood days. NOAA basically states it no longer takes a strong storm or a hurricane to cause coastal high tide flooding. It just happens because the water level as a whole is increasing. Of course, ultimately, the reason there's more tidal flooding than there used to be is because the ocean levels are rising, something like more than three inches in the last 20 years, and that's due to melting of the ice caps due to global climate change. And this is bad because high tide flooding causes road closures, it overwhelms storm drains, and it compromises buildings and highways and roads and things like that. So this rate of high tide flooding is happening about twice as much as it was 30 years ago. And all these new high tide floods are not due to storms. They're due to the rising sea. And these are called sunny day storms or clear sky storms. Most of these high tide floods are happening in southeast Atlantic coast and on the eastern shores of the Gulf Coast. And just to emphasize, it's not due to heavy rainfall or overflowing rivers. They'll just be a clear, sunny day, but the tides go higher than they normally do. And if you want to know what cities are most vulnerable for these high flood days, you're talking about Boston, Massachusetts, Atlantic City, New Jersey, Sandy Hook, New Jersey, Sabine Pass, Texas, and Galveston, Texas. So that's it. I just wanted to update you about a couple of the reports coming out of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's a pretty frightening report. I think I'll finish with a couple quotes. One is by Dr. William Sweet. He's one of the co-authors of this NOAA report. He's quoted as saying, what used to be uncommon is now becoming fairly common. And Dr. Ben Horton, a Rutgers University researcher and who was not involved in this NOAA study, he calls it a warning shot across the bow, across the whole of the U.S. coastline. We are in dire need of action. that exercise is good for you. That is repeated all the time by medical professions, and it's something that we've observed in ourselves and our friends and family. However, researchers are still interested in how this actually helps us, and thus they study specific ways that exercise helps our body. One group of researchers in England studied a group of elderly long-distance cyclists. It was a really large group of cyclists, about 125 individuals, some of which are now in their 80s. Amazingly, these cyclists had the immune systems of 20-year-olds. That's probably great because, as you all know, elderly people are more susceptible to infections, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on. That's because the immune system declines about 2-3% to 3% a year, starting in our 20s. This is called immunosenescence. 
There are many parts of our immune system. We have a basic defense to any foreign invaders. We call this innate immunity. Whereas we have a learned part of our immune response known as adaptive immunity. So when you encounter an infection, your body learns how to fight it off again. And they do this by creating antibodies that recognize a pathogen. One specific part of the adaptive immune system are called T cells. They're called T cells because they mature in the thymus. This is a small specialized organ that is part of the lymphatic system. It's located behind the sternum between the lungs but these cells circulate in the body through the blood. In this study, published in the journal Aging Cell, scientists took blood samples from the long-distance cyclists and examined their T-cells. The elderly cyclists have more naive T-cells than their inactive counterparts. Naive means they haven't learned how to recognize any pathogens yet. This is good because you want to have more of those naive T-cells, which give you the ability to recognize new infections when you encounter them. These cyclists also had a higher levels of a molecule called IL-7, this is known to protect these native T-cells. As we get older, the thymus slowly shrinks, eventually degrading into this tiny island of fatty tissue. At its max, it weighs about 30 to 37 grams. And by 75 years of age, it only weighs around 6 grams. So these cyclists had a lower level of the molecule known as IL-6 that causes this uh, thymic atrophy. In a separate paper in Aging Cell, they found that these cyclists did not lose muscle mass or strength and did not seem to increase in body fat, which are usually associated with aging. Does this mean everyone needs to be an endurance cyclist until they're 80? No, no it doesn't. There are a lot of varying suggestions on how much activity people should have, but around 30 minutes to an hour of light activity a day is a good start, with some moderate to high activity mixed in. Ashley, those were cyclists that they were studying. What about other kinds of ath athleticism like swimming or walking? Swimming is such a great high endurance activity. I think that would probably be the same. Um, these researchers were kind of lucky in that there was this very large cycling club in their area that they were able to tap into for this study. Um, I think we would see the same results with, with uh, swimmers or runners, um, probably even tennis players, really any, any kind of activity that just gets your, you breathing heavy and your heart going. And physiology is not a black or white kind of thing. You'd think even moderate exercise, maybe you get reduced levels of those IL, those interleukins, but still might be healthy. Yeah, I, I think that's the point is, is you really don't have to be those kind of crazy cyclists or marathon runners. It's really just uh, a matter of doing something that gets your body active and going rather than just, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV. Yeah. Did they say anything about how long that effect lasts? Can I do one marathon? It'll last for a long time? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. I think um, the study implies that you kind of need to, to be doing this more regularly and that just one marathon isn't oh, enough shoot. to give you a little boost <laughs> for the next three years. So maybe that's you just do uh, a little walk each day and that equals a marathon over time. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm hoping. <laughs> Here's a real interesting paper that came out in May of 2018 in the journal Ecology, which is put out by the Ecological Society of America. It involves some research done at Kobe University in Japan, and the title of the article is Potential Role of Bird Predation in the Dispersal of Otherwise Flightless Stick Insects. Well, you probably already know how a lot of plants use birds to spread themselves across the landscape. 
A bird will eat a fleshy fruit that has small seeds inside, and if the seeds have a hard, tough seed coat, the seed can pass through the bird's digestive system without being damaged. And then eventually the bird excretes that seed somewhere, and voila, the seed germinates and gets established in a new spot. A lot of plants do this. They have a well-protected seed surrounded by sweet, juicy, fragrant, fleshy tissue that animals are attracted to. And then the animal eats the fruit and inadvertently consumes the seed, which gets disseminated further from the mother plant that produced it. A classic example of this here in Kentucky is bush honeysuckle. I think that's why you always find bush honeysuckle plants located below the limbs of other trees, telephone lines, poles, fences, things like that, because that's where the birds sit to do their business, if you know what I mean, and that's where they drop the seeds for the plants to grow. These researchers in Japan observed that the same sort of thing might be happening with insects. If a bird eats a female insect that's carrying eggs or fertilized eggs, and those fertilized eggs are able to pass through the bird's digestive system and remain viable, then it might be a way of disseminating this insect. Now, the insect that they're working with in this study are stick insects. Things like praying mantis, sometimes they're called walking sticks, the distinguishing characteristic of these walking sticks or praying mantis is that they look like sticks. They blend in with the environment really well. So one of these insects sitting on a twig or a leaf somewhere, they just blend right in. This is a type of camouflage in these insects. It's a great way to hide from birds or other predators that might want to eat them. I think the reason these researchers focused on the stick insects is that the eggs that are carried by the maternal parent, the mother insect, are retained inside of the insect until maturity. And they do have a very thick, tough shell, so they could conceivably pass through a bird's digestive system without harm. There are three important characteristics of animal eggs if they're going to pass through a bird's digestive system intact. First of all, like I said before, the egg needs to be protected by a hard shell, and the walking sticks, praying mantis, definitely have that. Number two, the eggs must be viable without fertilization. Well, these stick insects, which is officially in the order called the phasmida, they are parthenogenic. That means that the eggs produced by the female can produce offspring without fertilization. It means that all the offspring are female, they're all clones of the mother. These insects can and do mate with males, but depending on the species, if there's no male to be found in that location, well, the insect can still reproduce. There's other animals that can reproduce this way, like aphids. If you ever had to deal with aphids in your garden, you know how fast they could populate a plant. Water fleas and nematodes also reproduce parthenogenically. And then the third characteristic of an animal that's going to make eggs that pass through the digestive system of a bird is one where the young hatchlings are able to fend for themselves once they're hatched. Once they're born, they need to be able to live without assistance from the mother, since in this situation the mother is being eaten by the bird. And that's not unusual for insects to produce offspring that are very independent. In fact, that's the most common situation. 
So walking sticks have all three of these characteristics. And what the researchers did was they identified three different species of walking stick-like insects. And they fed each one of the species to a bird that commonly eats that bug. Then they examined the bird's excrement to see how many eggs actually passed through in a viable state. Of the three species of insect that they examined, from 5% to 20% of the eggs actually did pass through the bird unharmed. In one insect species, the excreted eggs even hatched. So there you go. Insects can disperse their eggs in the same way that plants do through the digestive system of a bird. This research offers a new explanation for how walking sticks get dispersed in nature. The walking sticks don't fly. They don't have wings, so they really can't travel very far on their own. Biologists have long known about walking sticks on various islands, and people have wondered, how do the walking sticks get to these islands if they can't fly? Well, maybe birds flew the eggs out there and then dispersed them that way. Actually, that's what these researchers want to investigate next are the walking sticks that they find on various islands. They want to explore the genetic makeup to see if they can draw conclusions about the relationships between the stick insects on different islands. One big difference in how these stick insects are using birds to disperse themselves versus how plants are doing it is that plants have actually evolved means of attracting animals to eat the fruit. You know, they're very colorful, they taste good, they're sweet, they smell good, what have you. Whereas the stick insects are camouflaging themselves. They're actually trying to blend in with their environment. But a few of these stick insects are bound to be eaten every once in a while, and maybe there's an advantage to that. Given recent events, there has been a revival in the conversation on how our society approaches violence. We've seemingly gone back to the 90s to an old scapegoat, which is video games, and that violent video games is the direct cause of violent behavior. However, many research studies have shown that there is no correlation between playing violent video games and violent behavior. One big picture way of looking at this is to look at other developed countries that play the same video games. We have the United States, Australia, Canada, Great Britain, Finland, France, Italy, Germany, Norway, New Zealand, Spain, Sweden, and Japan. However, only one of these countries has an epidemic of school shootings, and that is the United States. So, there is another study that came out in January of 2018. In this study, 3,000 adults were examined to see how their exposure to violent video games affect their association to violence. So after playing a violent video game, the scientist had them complete a word fragmentation completion task. The expectation would be that if these violent video games gave people more violent thoughts, then more violent word associations would be chosen than those who played a more fantasy-like game. The study demonstrated that priming people with violent concepts from the video game did not correlate with violent concepts in the word fragmentation completion task. Again, this study was only done in adults, so if we take a look at another study from 2014 done with children on video game consumption, 
we see that video game consumption in children is associated with a decline in youth violence rate. So really opposite of what you know people are trying to argue. So it's incorrect to say, based on the research and what we see in other countries, that violent video games are the cause of this epidemic of gun violence. Do you play video games yourself? I play a lot of video games. Um, Any of them violent? I would say that some of them have... As, yeah, I mean, it depends on what you classify as violent. There are, okay. there are, I, ha, I play some first-person shooters, which I would consider violent. I'm trying to think, is there a game that's not violent? <laughs> they all involve putting somebody, somebody down, you know, getting rid of the enemy. Usually they all have they an do. enemy. Usually. Um, yeah. You know, there are other fun, silly-type games that don't, or, or maybe some of the fantasy games. Mario, I would say Mario usually doesn't <laughs> involve violence. It's car racing. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, but really the vast majority of them do involve, you know, some sort of enemy encounter. And how do you feel after you've played one of those? I actually think feel of, better. Think of the more violent ones. You feel all right? Yeah, like yeah, it's, it's a kind of a way for me to do <clears throat> stress relief. So I think, it, your system. you know, like you saw with this is that the children had an opposite effect. Um, if they played violent video games, they're actually less violent. And I think, you know, that's a good way. You've had a long, hard day and you just go home and... yeah. Just you can, get it out of your you system. You just get out of your system in a video game and, and you're you fine. And you can be peaceful when you're actually relating to real people. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, a good, I think it's a good form of stress relief. Especially for me, just getting done with, you know, a graduate school. It was a good outlet for uh, frustration yeah, or hard days. Tension and it's a way to kind of divorce yourself from the real world and enter, you know, no matter what you're playing, you have to enter some sort of other reality because it is a video game and you're either playing another character or doing something else unrealistic for the most part. As a teacher, though, I do have students who I know spend a lot of time playing games, and I wonder, are there any other effects of violent games? Maybe it doesn't make them want to pick up a gun, but could it have other effects like um, changing their ability to concentrate oh, I on think, boring things? I think completely, like <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, violent, or excuse me, video game addiction is, a, I think, a real problem. So, you know, kids would rather go home and play something fun than, you know, read their textbook for school. It's so easy to be able to, you know, plug into a video game than actually put some work behind education and your learning. So I think that is, you know, a problem in terms of, yeah. of the classroom. Yeah, but what this research is showing is if you're going to indict video games, make it for the right reason. It's apparently not really causing them to become violent. Not at all, yeah. Here's a question for you. Does playing jazz music require a different pattern of brain activity than playing classical music? What do you think? Well, Keith Jarrett, who's a world-famous jazz pianist, had something to say about that. He was offered an opportunity one time to play a concert where he could mix classical music with jazz. He laughed it off and said, no, that would be an impossible thing to do. And I'm quoting here, it's because of the circuitry. Your brain demands a different circuitry for those two things. Well, maybe Keith Jarrett nailed it right on the head because I want to tell you about a paper that was published in the journal Neuroimage in April of 2018. And it's a paper by a group of physiologists in Europe 
These neurobiologists set about studying the brain activity in musicians who were trained in two kinds of music, classical music versus jazz music. Now, one of the big differences between these two kinds of music is that classical musicians depend heavily on the notes that are written down by whoever the composer of that musical piece is. Jazz musicians, on the other hand, are allowed or even encouraged to take liberties with the music. That's what they call improvisation. These researchers really focused on the training aspect of what it takes to become a pianist. So they wanted to know if practicing to play jazz music versus practicing to play classical music involved changes in cognitive motor strategies. And they wanted to know that if those altered strategies might be due to the long hours of training for each of those two genres. Their idea was that maybe brain activities in these two types of musicians might be different due to all the hours they spent training to play each of those genres rather than the intricacies and details of any specific musical composition. So the researchers observed two groups of pianists. They had 15 pianists who had been trained to play classical music and they had been training for at least two years. And then they had an equal number, 15, of pianists who had been training to play jazz music for at least two years. And then they gave each of these musicians either jazz compositions or classical compositions to play. And while the pianists were playing these pieces, they were hooked up to an EEG, an electroencephalogram. EEG consists of multiple electrodes that they stick on different parts of the scalp, and they measure the ionic currents, which reflects the electrical activity going on inside the brain. After analyzing all the data, these researchers reported that brain activity was indeed different in these two types of musicians, even when they were playing the same piano composition. One of the things they did in this experiment was while each musician was playing a given composition, they changed it. They randomly altered the composition, so while the pianist was playing it, they had to adapt to it, the change and they measured what was going on in the brain while the musician was reacting to this alteration in the composition. What they found was that musicians who had been trained to play classical music on the piano were on average more accurate in their playing, but that the jazz musicians could adapt more quickly. They adapted 0.2 seconds faster than the classical musicians when there is a change, when there is an unexpected alteration in the score. Now this particular publication is not the first time that researchers have hooked musicians up to EEGs and measured their brain activity. It's been done before and the authors of this paper mentioned though that most of those other experiments have been done with musicians playing classical music. This is really one of the first times that researchers have focused on other kinds of music. So it's not to say that these other publications are wrong, just that the conclusions they drew may apply to musicians playing classical music, but they might not apply to musicians playing other kinds of music. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. 
We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at forwardradio.org. <laughs>